Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode 34 of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. On today's episode, we are going to talk about complementary and alternative medicine. So complementary and alternative medicine is often abbreviated as CAM or CAM, and we'll talk more about whether that is a, a good way of referring to these modalities in a bit. But we will define CAM more as we get into the episode, but just to give you a sense, this is things like acupuncture, chiropractic, aromatherapy, essential oils, homeopathy, herbal medicine, Reiki, and the list goes on and on. So we'll get into what all of these different modalities have in common, how they compare and contrast with conventional medicine. And really the reason that we're talking about this is because of the role that these modalities play in the larger wellness industry. And particularly what's relevant to us is that in the yoga world, these modalities are very popular and the, the yoga world is very intertwined with the wellness industry. For example, we often see CAM modalities offered alongside yoga. For example, the combination of yoga and Reiki or the combination of acupuncture with restorative yoga. So many yoga practitioners even participate in CAM modalities for their own healthcare. And so all of that just situates these modalities very much within the yoga world uh, and the wellness industry as a whole, which is why it's so relevant to us for this podcast. For this episode, we are joined by a very special guest. This guest is Jonathan Jerry, who is a science communicator from McGill's University of uh, or from McGill University's Office for Science and Society, which is located in Montreal. This Office for Science and Society is an organization dedicated to science education. Uh, it operates out of McGill University and it uses courses, mass media, special events, and books to debunk pseudoscientific myths and improve scientific literacy. Jonathan has his master's degree in molecular biology and brings experience in cancer research, human genetics, rehabilitation research, and forensic biology to the work he does for the public. In addition to all that, he co-hosts the award-winning medical podcast, The Body of Evidence, and is frequently quoted in local, national, and even international media on issues of science and pseudoscience, and was recently just quoted in a book for the first time, which hopefully we can hear more about. So two books uh, now. Two oh shoot, two books. I I undersold yes. them. And, and last but not least, <laughs> I just want to give a shout out because Jenny and I first uh, were introduced to Jonathan through our friend Chris Hewen's podcast. Uh, his podcast is called the Adaptabilia Podcast. Um, and so that was a, a great episode and, and that's a great podcast. So we'll, we'll link that in the show notes, but Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. 
Well, thank you very much for having me, and thanks for thanks for the invitation. It is so Our great. To, yeah, yes, we're so excited that you decided to join us, and we really admire the work that you do and the really important education that you're offering to the public. And um, yeah, we see it as super valuable, and so we're very we feel very lucky and fortunate to have you here with us today. And one of our first questions for you is just to ask you about uh, the Office for Science and Society at McGill University in Montreal, where uh, where you work. Like it, that sounds like a very inter interesting organization, and unlike any that I that I've really heard about before. Can you tell us a bit about it? As far as we know, we're the only university-based office that does this kind of work. Uh, so, as I like to say, we are not doing sort of public relations or marketing work for the university saying, this is the research that's being done at McGill. This is not what we do. What we do is we answer the public's questions about science, especially health sciences. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of pseudoscience out there, a lot of lies, a lot of hype as well. And we try and, and, and sort of clear all of this mess and get to what the scientific evidence is saying and bring that to the public in a way that is understandable, where you don't need to have a PhD in biochemistry to understand what we're saying. Uh, so that's, that's basically what we do and what we've been doing for, I mean, the office is over 20 years old at this point. Uh, I joined the office something like five years ago, five-ish years ago. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's, that's the, the work that we do. Wow. Yeah. And it just sounds like uh, such a valuable offering, especially to translate these concepts to like digestible terms that just general public can understand. Because, yeah, like you said, I mean, to really understand a lot of the science at a higher level can often take a lot of background knowledge and maybe higher degrees. And so you guys are just really offering such a great service by kind of distilling maybe more sophisticated information into terms that people can relate to and understand and make meaningful for them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's becoming hard to figure out what is good science, what is bad science, and what is fake science or pseudoscience. Uh, because, you know, every scientific field is becoming more and more specialized. You can go and, and find papers out there that seem to support any hypothesis that you have. Uh, and if yeah. you're if, and if you're not scientifically literate enough to contextualize this study, to look at its limitations and to look at the body of evidence on that topic, it's very easy to become seduced by these ideas and say, hey, look, it's backed up by good evidence. Look, mm -hmm. I found a paper about this. Yeah, but one paper usually isn't enough. So that's what we're trying to do as well is, is really contextualize the claims that are being made. Was this done in mice? Was this done in Petri dishes? Or have there been numerous, you know, randomized clinical trials about this? Because that's, that's very different. The strength of the evidence is going to be very different depending on the methodology that is being used. That is so true. Uh, thank you for speaking to that. And that also reminds me that, like, in addition to, it seems like, the individual subjects that you might focus on or that the office might focus on and put out a, a video about or some sort of um, post about, it also seems like at least you specifically and probably the office in general are just great at, at helping improve scientific literacy in general by just educating about some kind of fundamental foundational scientific concepts that often just the general public or general layperson doesn't even realize that they don't know about like they might have a vague idea of what science is and that it's important but when you actually look into it there there are a lot of facets there right 
Yeah, there's 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 a, there's a void to be filled because we have all these science centers and these science museums, and unfortunately, most of them cater to. Right. Well, I say unfortunately, I mean they cater mostly to children and to and to new families, like like you know, uh, new new parents who have young kids, and that is very valuable. But then they kind of sell you science as this thing that kids are into, and so as something that then you grow out of. But the problem is that we all have to make decisions based on good science. Like, what are we going to eat? Is there a diet that is better than others? What kind of exercise is good for me? What has good evidence behind it? Uh, uh, what about climate change? Is this real? I mean, where, why, how do we know mm -hmm. these things? So there are all these decisions that we have to make that are influenced and should be influenced by scientific knowledge. But then we're told, oh, science is this thing that kids are into. So you know, our office and many other people, of course, not just us, but we're trying to fill that gap and show that no, science is important to adults as well. And we're trying to equip you with the knowledge and the context that you need to understand the science that impacts everyday life. Wow. I've never even thought about that. Like science mu museums tend to be for kids and like targeted it's as a, this It's family. a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> and I've, I've spoken to people at, at science museums and they're just perfectly happy with having this demographic. And yeah, that is important. But yeah. I feel like there's also all of the adults out there who go out and they vote and they buy yes, food Jonathan, and they have to make all yes. these decisions. And it's like they should also be scientifically literate. They should, they should also be interested in science. And science is fascinating even mm -hmm. for adults you just have to figure out how to explain it to people to make it interesting hey quick question for you are you someone who wants to be fit healthy and happy and what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or go search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Absolutely. That is so well said. Well, um, one thing that we wanted to ask you about was clearly you understand the scientific method very well. You're, you're highly scientifically literate and that I, I believe helps you in interpreting so much of the information that we're all inundated with all the time and helps you interpret and then, you know, make suggestions based on your understandings of the scientific method. And we were wondering, as you kind of coming from that perspective, um, as maybe uh, maybe like a science advocate or a pro-science person, or some people might use the term skeptic, we were wondering if there's like a backstory for you in terms of your kind of embodying like that science advocate role. Like, were you someone who just kind of maybe grew up with science? You feel like you've always maybe had these understandings and maybe grew a little frustrated and seeing so much misinformation out there? Or did you possibly used to believe like some, maybe a good amount of pseudoscience and then maybe you learn more and kind of had a quote, like awakening. And maybe that's part of your, your process in coming to where you are now. Do you know what I mean? Yes. What is my origin story? Yes. Um, yes. For being where you are. I was bitten by a radioactive spider. Um, <laughs> no. So I, I, like I, I used, I used to be much more Fox Mulder than Dana Scully. 
um, which I realize now is a reference that is getting more and more dated. I mean, I don't is know if you have like X-Files. Yes. Okay. Oh, wow. My dad, hold, my dad was a big oh, X-Files so fan. Uh, I'm so aware. I know the names, but Scully, well, isn't X-Files Scully? is coming back, right? It, yes, no. they, they have released. They have released uh, newer seasons. Yeah, uh, yeah. So this is this is what's what's a better reference? I don't know. I think a but lot of our listeners will know the reference. Okay, so there there was a show in the early, well, in most of the '90s, called The X Files, mm-hmm. which I huge. would argue that and The Simpsons were like the two big cultural touchstones on television in the 1990s. And The X Files was a show that uh, pitted a skeptic and a believer together. They were FBI agents. Uh, the, uh, one of them, Fox Mulder, who was the believer, um, his, I believe his sister had been kidnapped by aliens allegedly. And so he became a believer in all of these kinds of phenomena. And he was relegated to, uh, the, what they call the X files, these unexplained case files that the FBI had. And he became paired with Dana Scully, who was a physician, uh, and she was a skeptic and they, and together they would, they would explore you know, the, 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 the X-File of the week. And unfortunately it always turned out that the skeptic was wrong and the believer was right. So in that year, as it almost always is in American media, right? The, the skeptic is there to be proven wrong. And by right. the end, it turns out that yes, uh, aliens are real, ghosts are real, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so anyway, so all that to say that I used to believe in all kinds of things when I was growing up. I was into ghosts and vampires and the Loch Ness Monster and uh, Yeti and like all of that stuff. Wow. Um, and I went to university to study biochemistry. And th- th- I mean, there was no like road to Damascus or reverse road to Damascus or road out of Damascus moment for me. Uh, I just slowly became start to understand science more and more. And I became more and more of a skeptic over the years. Uh, when you start to do laboratory work and you see how experiments mm-hmm. are done um, and you start to discuss results and you see how, you know, you do an experiment and you expect result A or B and you get result C all the time. Uh, it, it, it changes how your brain works and you start to understand that, okay, this stuff is hard. Um, but it, but in the end, it, it really pays off. And so all those, those, you know, big claims, these extraordinary claims, uh, that are not backed up by good scientific evidence, there's probably not much to them. Uh, so I, I sort of became more and more of a skeptic, uh, as the years went on. Um, I started a PhD program, uh, that I quit after three years. I witnessed a lot of bad science around me. Mm. I was told to analyze data in, in bad ways when I was there as well. And so I also started to see problems with the way that scientific research was being done because there are bad incentives in the system. It's a human activity like any others. And so science is great. But science, as it is done by humans, is flawed in a myriad of ways. I mean, in the end, we get to the to the right answers, but it, it takes a while to get there, and it, it's somewhat inefficient. And so mm-hmm. that um, that led me to want to do science communication and to uh, bring this to the, to the public, so that the public has a realistic expectation of what scientific research can deliver. Um, and that's what I've been doing for many, many years now, uh, even before being recruited by, uh, by Miguel to do this, uh, with, uh, with the OSS. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing your backstory. I think many of us can relate to, 
um, holding some of those beliefs. Like I think that um, Yeti or Bigfoot is a really cool story to learn about. Yes, and that's and that is often the appeal of these things is that they are cool stories, mm, and we oh, want yes. to believe, and we want to believe in these in in, in magic in a sense, in yes. things that are beyond us uh, that that seem amazing that trigger this curiosity and this awe that we have. And when you're a scientist, you find this awe in the natural yeah. world, because I mean, if you're an astrophysicist and you're learning about all these phenomena that are happening in deep space, it is incredible. If like me, you studied molecular biology and genetics, I mean, learning about how, I mean, the intricacies of how our cells work, I mean, how there are these little little cities that are so well organized and all of these different molecules and all the stuff that they do, that is what provides awe to me. Yes. But before you learn about all this stuff, I mean, it's very tempting to get drawn into believing to vampires and werewolves and things of that nature. Cause it is, I mean, it does, I mean, it is cool. It's very cool. <laughs> right. Right. But when, when you really study science and learn much more about, uh, things that the scientific method studies, I think we definitely start to see that there's so much magic there. There's so much. It's, um, yeah, it can be very, it's not, ma it's not magic, but it, it is, right. it has the qualities the right, the right of word. magic, I guess. Exactly. Oh, I think you use the word awe and maybe that's like the right word. There's so yeah, much it is, awe. It is awe inspiring. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, so our main focus for being here today is to talk with you, uh, as Travis mentioned in the intro, about complementary and alternative medicine, which is often um, abbreviated to CAM. Uh, and we thought that in order to, for you to like offer us an education on that, it would make sense to like compare and contrast CAM to um, what might be called, and maybe you could tell us what you what term you like, but conventional medicine or modern medicine or science-based medicine, whatever, however we're going to refer to it, but maybe- or just in, medicine, right? Yes, <laughs> Or as to mention said, medicine. Yes. So um, uh, maybe before we dive into having you um, sure. like talk about CAM, maybe you could explain for us like what what is science-based medicine? Um, what does that look like? What are the, the pillars and the qualities there? Okay, so I'm not a medical doctor, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But I've done a lot of work in the health sciences. Um, I often consider myself to be a paramedic, not in the actual sense of the term, but in the sense of being next to medicine. Uh, mm. So I've, I've, I've studied, I mean, my supervisors have, have often been physicians, I've worked in clinical labs. And so uh, that's why I'm interested in, in health and medicine, even though I'm not, I'm not a physician myself. But basically, medicine has had a very long evolution from believing that uh, everything uh, in the body can be divided into four humors, and this is right. the theory of disease, to using leeches uh, and bloodletting for any kind of ailment. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, what we sometimes refer to as eminence-based medicine. Well, look, there's this one guy and we all revere him and he's a doctor and he says that in his practice, you know, this works. And so I guess we're going to do that. So for a very long wow. time, it was eminence-based medicine. And the idea of evidence-based medicine with a V is relatively recent. Um, and it is this idea that, well, you know, what doctors do should be based on good scientific evidence, which we kind of take for granted now, but for most of the history of medicine, that was not the case. Um, and so, you know, we're really looking at like the 70s, 80s and 90s when evidence-based medicine comes into its own and when 
um, researchers and often like MD PhDs will start to do these randomized clinical trial where they are pitting an intervention against a placebo, for example, so something that is inert, that looks like the intervention that is indistinguishable from it, but that doesn't really have anything in it uh, to see um, and, and to sort of randomize people into different groups uh, that are comparable and nobody knows in which group they are. And then you follow them and you see has the intervention. Can you see like specific effects of the intervention compared to the control arm? I'm oversimplifying and there are other ways of doing uh, clinical trials when there's, when there's a standard of care, for example, you cannot deny the standard of care and put people on, on sugar pills, for example. But that's the basic idea of a randomized clinical trial, which is one of the most robust tools that we have to test interventions in the biomedical sciences. Um, and so by doing these trials, you know, we've discovered that some of the uh, interventions in medicine didn't have good evidence behind, they didn't really work. and so. You know, hopefully you toss them out. Of course, there's always egos in the way. And so they can take some time before uh, practices change. But that's the basic idea. And, and you can't always do a clinical trial. Sometimes it's unethical. Sometimes it's just not feasible. You can't force people on a diet for 50 years and see what happens. So sometimes right. you have to rely on what we might call lesser forms of evidence, observational studies, where you just see what naturally happens in people who choose to do a certain thing. And there are advantages and disadvantages to each of these types of you know, observational versus experimental studies. But the basic idea of evidence-based medicine is, hey, the physicians who are practicing medicine should be basing their interventions on good scientific evidence. Now, there's a distinction between evidence-based medicine and science-based medicine. And science-based mm -hmm. medicine is advocated uh, a lot by skeptics in that sphere. So people who believe that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. There is a website called Science-Based Medicine uh, run by doctors David Gorski and Stephen Novella. And the distinction between evidence-based medicine and science-based medicine is that science-based medicine has one more thing in it, one more ingredient, and that is prior plausibility. And so that means that, okay, so given our understanding of biology and chemistry and physics, if we have something to test, well, if, it, if the claim is completely outrageous and it would rewrite the books on biology and chemistry and physics, maybe we shouldn't be wasting our research funds testing that hypothesis. What happens is that when you test a number of things, you're going to get a positive result by chance alone at some point. Mm -hmm. And the light that science-based medicine can cast is to say, yeah, okay, you, you, you did you know, seven trials of, of Reiki, and we'll get into Reiki, I'm sure. You did seven trials of Reiki, and one of them was positive. And evidence-based evidence -based medicine might say, well, you know, that's one out of seven. That's interesting. And science-based <laughs> medicine goes, yeah, but what is the prior plausibility of Reiki being true? What is a plausibility that we have this energy field around us that's never been really detected or measured by science and that you can manipulate it with your hands? How, what, the, the plausibility is very, very, very low. And so you have to put that in the balance when you're yeah. looking at that one out of seven positive result. So that is a distinction between evidence-based medicine and science-based medicine. I would say that right now what physicians are trying to practice is evidence-based medicine, but there are people in that field who are trying to bring this up to science-based medicine and say, look, when we are studying extraordinary claims, we have to take into account 
their prior plausibility when we look at the results of those studies. Did that make sense at all? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. That does, yeah. Thank you. We're actually going to ask you about that distinction between those two terms. And uh, yeah, if you had an explanation for that, and if if um, that distinction is important to you, like, are you do you go out of your way to say science based medicine versus evidence based, or in a sense, you know, could they be interchangeable depending on, I guess. Well, I mean, they're not in, in, interchangeable. I mean, they, they do mean different things. Um, mm -hmm. And so I try to use the correct phrase depending on the context. Excellent. Thank you for explaining. That makes so much sense about taking prior plausibility into account and not necessarily treating, I don't know um, if it would be correct to say just treating all hypotheses as like on similar footing or something, but just right, to... Right, because they're, they're not all, they don't have the, the all of the same plausibility uh, before you start testing them. Some of them you go, well, that's plausible given our our understanding of human biology, uh, of, of just basic biology and biochemistry, molecular biology. And then there are others where it comes out of left field completely and you go, well, that's that would be very strange if this were true. So we should be very, very careful when we look at the results of your study and pay specific attention to the possibility that maybe you just got a false positive result, which yes. happens all the time in science, right? Right. So that's that's the distinction that I think is, is important to make. Absolutely. That's super helpful uh, to have you explain. So now that you've kind of given us a good definition uh, and some foundational terms for thinking about science-based medicine and what that looks like and what that means, maybe now could you explain for us just kind of in, in broad conceptual terms, what is cam or complementary alternative medicine like what um what's the definition of of cam <laughs> um i can tell you what it is not uh okay, yeah that's helpful kind of, yeah we'll sort of circle around what it is and what it can be uh when i and we were discussing this before we were recording but what, when i write about this stuff and i do i do a lot of writing for the oss um mcgill.ca oh, right. oss if you're looking for our stuff uh when i write about this about CAM, I tend to write it as so-called alternative medicine or so-called complementary and alternative medicine, because I don't really agree with the use of the word medicine in there. Um, mm -hmm. But the way that they would describe it, the, the, their proponents, is that alternative medicine is literally an alternative to conventional medicine. And complementary medicine is meant to be something that you take on top of conventional medicine. And mm. CAM, just to use that as a shorthand, uh, CAM has gone through a number of different rebranding exercises over the years. Uh, <laughs> and the, the latest one is integrative medicine or integrative health. And mm -hmm. it's this idea that, okay, well, we recognize that CAM is not perfect. You need conventional medicine. So we need to integrate the two of them so that we get the best of both worlds. So that is kind of where things are right now in the marketing of these interventions. Uh, a lot of CAM is pre-scientific. So they mm -hmm. are notions that date back to before modern science. They have not changed much, if at all, since science came along. Um, and they tend to have a one true cause of disease 
and mm-hmm. a cure-all that they offer. Uh, so what I tend to call the boogeyman slash panacea combo. So in oh, each yeah. form of cam, there's a boogeyman. There's a thing that causes all diseases. And it just so happens that its practitioners have the cure-all, of course, right? So whether it's, uh, you know, uh, vertebral subluxations in chiropractic, whether it's the blockage of chi in acupuncture, um, it, there's always, there's a thing that they know it causes everything and then they can treat it for you with this one intervention which if we just again if we just bring this back to prior plausibility if we Mm -hmm. know a thing or two about conventional medicine we know that there is no one cause of all diseases there's a reason why there are specialties and subspecialties in medicine uh, and there's a reason why there are many different types of interventions, even just for cancer, which is a fairly common family of diseases. Uh, there's uh, there's radiotherapy, there's chemotherapy, uh, there's surgery, um, and now we're getting to like biologics and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, this idea that there would be one cause of all diseases and one treatment for all diseases, it beggars belief. And what I find particularly fascinating is that everybody under that cam tent uh, mm-hmm. seems perfectly content to believe that they have the ultimate boogeyman and the and the ultimate cure-all and their neighbor who's also under the cam tent but who believes in a different system of cam they think that you're completely wrong and that they have the cause the one true cause of all diseases and the cure-all and they never really fight amongst themselves they're all like no it's, it's fine as long as we're opposed to conventional medicine uh, i won't question the fact that your boogeyman and your panacea is completely different from mine but we all agree that that and and what's interesting is that in that way that I'm phrasing this, it is identical to how conspiracy theorists think amongst themselves, mm. and that is why there's a lot of wow. conspiracy thinking against big pharma in in cam, which is that you know you go to a flat Earth convention and you will hear a lot of different hypotheses about the true shape of the Earth. None of them agree on what the true shape of the Earth is, but they all agree that it is not spheroid. <laughs> It is not a fear. And that's what we you have been sold a lie. The mainstream narrative is wrong, but they all have their own pet theories as to which one is right. And it's the same thing with Cam. That is so interesting. So it's like under this one umbrella in which um, society tends to put alternative medicine or Cam or, or um, integrated medicine, like I guess there are all these terms. It's like they all get lumped together and they all seem to get along with one another. Because just like you said, because even even though, um, a, you know, compared to one another, their beliefs are kind of incompatible between exactly. modalities, but they all yeah. still unite and they're all friends because they have this common, I guess, maybe, maybe enemy. I don't know if that's too harsh of a word, but they do seem to be, I mean, maybe. I think that's appropriate. <laughs> I mean, some of them, some of them might be more hand in hand with with medicine, right? right. Like the integrative folks, and right. others are very much opposed to medicine. But there's this general suspicion, at the very least, of the impact that the pharmaceutical industry has on physicians, and and oh, they yeah, are right so to true. an extent. I mean, they are right to an extent, and and I always refer people to Ben Goldacre's book, Bad Pharma which is written by a physician and it is critical of the pharmaceutical industry and its impact on the practice of medicine. But then you can take that too far and think that there's this giant grand conspiracy and that all doctors are either complete idiots or they're in the pocket of big pharma. And therefore Reiki is true. Um, (laughs) It's a leap in logic that you can't, you just can't make that. 
I was going to ask you about that, actually, that I that I tend to see that argument put forth quite a bit where it's um, someone maybe has had a bad experience with conventional medicine or they've um, they've just adopted these beliefs that it's that's bad or that it's wrong or it's not the answer. And then the next quote logical conclusion is, therefore, alternative medicine is right. You know, it's like Western medicine. I disagree with therefore these alternatives are the way to go. But that does not seem like it makes sense logically. Right. No, exactly. Like you have to prove that alternative medicine works before you make that leap. Um, and and to your point, I do understand. I have seen a lot of medical doctors in my lifetime, and I, I've also seen a number of alternative, you know, health practitioners, whatever we want to call them. And and there is a difference. You know, you you go to a hospital or you go to a clinic, and the lighting is horrible, and you're yeah. in this tiny little office and everything is sterile and you get maybe 15 minutes if you're lucky mm -hmm. and hopefully you're on a good day and the doctor's running late because his secretary or her secretary has booked 25 patients in the in the in the day totally uh, it's not a pleasant experience and and i'm a man and i can only imagine how worse it is usually for women for people of color that's a long documented history of people who have their symptoms denied and it's all in your head yeah. and blah 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 whereas you go see an acupuncturist or you go and see a chiropractor and I mean, just the first appointment is at least an hour long and they will yeah. often talk to you about your life and what you do and every symptom that you have. And it's a much more calm environment. It's much friendlier. It's more comfortable. Uh, they're generally on schedule um, and the treatments that they have, they tend to be less invasive. Um, mm -hmm. And it just the whole experience is so much nicer. And I think that you know, our healthcare system, if we could afford it, I guess, would benefit from learning from these CAM practitioners on how not not the, not the, the diagnoses or the treatments, but the super the superficial uh, delivery of all of this care, um, the the human you know relationship, mm -hmm. uh, the interplay there, and the the sort of the com the general comfort that is elicited by the looks and the sounds and and all of that structure i mean that stru that shell if you will is so much nicer and better um but what i would like to a, a real integrative medicine would do that it would take that shell from camp of how it presents itself and would marry it with the best of evidence-based medicine but that's not right. what actual integrative medicine is unfortunately but, so anyway all of that to say i completely understand how fans of cam mm -hmm. feel about their medical experiences because i have been there myself but again the answer is as 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 again to quote ben goldacre uh when there's a problem with airplanes the solution is not magic carpets right it's not, it's not flying carpets yes. but that yes. is that is a good analogy for what's happening with cam it's like okay so there are problems with the healthcare system um the answer is not magic and we'll yeah. get into that. That's right. It's um, maybe like a false dichotomy or something to like set those two up as like, you know, the inverse of one another or something. But it's like there are problems with conventional medicine, as, as you just outlined. But there are a lot of problems with complementary alternative medicine or complementary and alternative medicine um, in terms of it's not evidence based. At least it seems to me like it hasn't been rigorously tested and, and shown to actually work as far as the the mechanisms that they cite for why people are sick and what will help them get better. So CAM may be, um, may have great positive aspects, like you said, like the interpersonal connection, more time spent between practitioner and patient. And all of that is, is so important and very helpful, but there's also a lot more in that whole picture 
that is um, not necessarily helpful and not evidence-based. Um, so thanks for, yeah, just, just, we could be realistic and we could be critical of a system without needing to outright reject it or um, pick up something. But that's what's difficult, though. right? It's, is getting to that nuanced dialogue. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's much easier to just throw the baby out with bathwater and yes. then embrace whatever is left. Uh, and it's just, it's just harder to look at a problem and say, you know what? It is very complex. Uh, the, the solutions are going to be hard and complicated and they're going to cost money. Uh, it's a lot easier to seek out simple solutions. And we see this in wellness broadly uh, all the time, complex mm -hmm. problems, simple solutions, but those simple solutions often turn out to be wrong. Thank you for mentioning wellness because Travis and I did want to ask you, we know you've written about the wellness industry and as Travis mentioned in the intro, like yoga is really intertwined with the wellness industry. You could say, I mean, it's, I know, I believe the wellness industry is kind of a nebulous, like to actually define what it actually means can be yes, a little it nebulous. Is. <laughs> I just, you... I just reviewed, uh, sorry, I just reviewed uh, two books on wellness that came out last year. There was the gospel of wellness and why wellness sells and yeah. both books write that, yeah, there is no definition of wellness. Uh, and it's, it's this very nebulous concept. And it's very interesting, uh, as Colleen Durkatch um, um, shows in her book, Why Wellness Sells, wellness is often seen like in opposition to the pharmaceutical, industrial, medical complex. Yes, and is, yet, yeah. when you ask people why you're taking this wellness supplement, they will talk about it in terms of illness. Oh, it's a treatment for this thing that I've been diagnosed with. So they say one thing, but then when they're really pressed for it, it turns into, no, it, it, it is an alternative to medicine. So yeah, so wellness is very nebulous. And because of, of its nebulous nature, it allows the wellness industry to sprawl and to become whatever it needs to become and to make as much money as possible because it's not restrained by any kind of definition. It is whatever you want it to be. It's a, it's a Rorschach right. test. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, what sort of role would you suggest that CAM modalities or complementary and alternative medicine modalities, what sort of role do they play in the greater wellness industry? And may maybe they are the wellness industry or maybe the wellness industry is larger than CAM modalities. What's that connection? Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. I think that, um, I mean, I think that they are overlapping circles. Mm -hmm. um, I think that in wellness, generally speaking, you're going to see a lot of skepticism of medicine, of conventional medicine, a lot of embrace of alternatives to medicine. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that they're one and the same, but definitely mm -hmm. they feed into each other. Uh, this idea that, well, either medicine doesn't have all the answers or, or medicine is for treating things when it's too late. Whereas you want to prevent things, right? You want to be well, as opposed to being ill. And so that's yeah. why you do your yoga and you drink your smoothies and you go see your acupuncturist. And, you know, one of the things that I learned is that, you know, the business model of a camp practitioner, because I saw a chiropractor, I saw an acupuncturist in the past. And basically is they do a lot of therapeutic sessions in the beginning, multiple sessions a week to get rid of this issue that you have. But then of course you have to come back on a monthly basis for maintenance therapy. That's and right. so you're never done with your acupuncturist. You're never done with your chiropractor. There are always maintenance uh, treatments. And a question that I've asked in the past, I've never had a good answer is, has anybody ever been to a CAM uh, provider like an acupuncturist or a homeopath and been told, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. 
they always have something for you. They will always take you on as a client. Whereas you will often go see a doctor who will say, I'm sorry, like this is outside of my specialty or we don't know enough about this thing. We don't have a good answer for you. And that, of course, that drives people to go to a CAM practitioner who will, of course, never say there's nothing I can do for you. There's always something that they can do for you. Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. We hope you're enjoying learning from the super knowledgeable science communicator, Jonathan Cherry. We feel so lucky to be able to feature Jonathan's insights on healthcare and what defines science-based practices. If you're familiar with Travis's and my work together, you know that we value taking a science-based approach to all of our offerings as well including our one-of-a-kind Strength for Yoga remote group training program, which is a monthly strength program we created to make strength training accessible and relevant for yogis. Our Strength for Yoga program also comes with unlimited access to my full yoga class library. Use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our program or your first month in any other membership on my website. You can learn more and sign up at JennyRawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. Also remember that other ways you can support us are by signing up for my email newsletter at JennyRawlings.com newsletter and the link is in the show notes and by subscribing to this podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. And now back to our episode with Jonathan. They always have something for you. They will always take you on as a client. Whereas you will often go see a doctor who will say, I'm sorry, like this is outside of my specialty or we don't know enough about this thing. We don't have a good answer for you. And that, of course, that drives people to go to a CAM practitioner who will, of course, never say there's nothing I can do for you. There's always something that they can do for you. That is such a great point. Thank you so much for pointing out that red flag. I feel like that's uh, a really unique insight that I haven't really heard everyone say before, but it's so true. Like to be, to be honest in what we can offer, like to really understand that will include um, knowing when we're not able to help someone and referring out. And that, that does seem to not, not, not necessarily be a common practice with, with many of these CAM modalities. Now I noticed Jonathan that you mentioned uh, both acupuncture and chiropractic a bit ago. And we did want to ask you about, so we've kind of talked in broad strokes about complementary and alternative medicine, but we did want to get your insights on just some specific modalities, especially to give, you know, some of our, for some of our listeners, these thoughts, maybe the first time they've heard, um, you know, like alternative medicine being questioned. Like I, I remember being in that place when I was just really surprised to learn that some of these uh, modalities actually might not be science-based. Like I just, I could see a lot of, for a lot of our listeners, this being pretty new. I think it would be helpful if we gave, you know, went through a few examples of some specific modalities. And we, uh, on our list, we were going to ask you about acupuncture first, but actually I want, because you mentioned chiropractic a few times and right before we got on and started to record, this is just kind of a little aside, but I had put up on social media in my Instagram stories that we were recording with a very special guest, a science communicator about alternative medicine. And then I was, I, I made a little list. I was like, such as, and I listed some modalities just so people had an idea of what we were talking about. And I said like, uh, 
you know, acupuncture, Reiki, aromatherapy, um, homeopathy, and chiropractic. And I put that on the list. And I, I had this feeling that some people would see that and and not understand, like not understand chiropractic being on a list of alternative medicine. And someone actually responded right before we got on and wrote, uh, that looks interesting, like our episode, our podcast episode, that looks interesting, but as a physio, a physiotherapist, a physical therapist, I don't consider chiropractic as alternative medicine. <laughs> and I think a lot of people, at least in my understanding, I think a lot of people see chiropractic as they, you know, seems very clinical and medical and science-based. They're doctors, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling many of our listeners may be surprised to, could you maybe tell us a bit about why it's an alternative medicine? I, I was surprised as well because growing up, I assumed that chiropractors were medical doctors who had specialized in treating back problems. Yeah, me too, uh, I think. That was my idea. I just picked up on it from my family, from the culture, whatever. It was just in the water. Yeah, of course, chiropractors are physicians who specialize in back problems. They are not. Um, and and what we're going to dive into, uh, I, I did want to plug a book yeah, uh, yeah, that I showed you guys before. Mm -hmm. uh, so if anybody's interested in, in doing like a real deep dive uh, into all of these alternative, so-called alternative medical practices, I highly recommend the book uh, Trick or Treatment, Alternative Medicine on Trial is by Simon Singh and Edsand Ernst. Uh, I wish it was more easily available, uh, but if you can find it, uh, I think that it, it is the best book that I've ever read on CAM. Uh, wow. And it's also very gentle. So if you do believe in these things, if you've had good experiences uh, and you don't want a book uh, where somebody hits you over the head with how wrong you are and how stupid you are, uh, <laughs> right. this is the right book because this, this book really guides you through how we know the things that we know. And each, each section on each of these modalities starts without giving you the answer. They just go, okay, so here are the claims and let's look at the history of this thing and let's look at the studies that were done. And then it's only at the end that you find out, oh, is this is this based on good evidence or not? So I, it's a very gentle, uh, well-written, very well-documented book. Uh, so again, a trick or treatment, I highly recommend it. Thank so you. to answer your question, and, and I'm gonna be a little bit cheeky about it, um, and I don't have like all the details in front of me, but, but basically chiropractic, chiropractic is a guy who decided that um, that the flow of God's energy through your spine was being impaired and that caused diseases. He cracked the spine of a deaf janitor and claimed to have cured him of his deafness. I, this is not an episode of The Simpsons. This is literally the origin story of chiropractic. Uh, I believe his name was D.D. Palmer. Uh, he started a school for this. And uh, this is what, because there, there's been a split since then, there are like two main flavors of chiropractors or people who still believe in these uh, original spiritual ideas are called vitalistic chiropractors or straight chiropractors. And so they literally believe that there is some vital essence, often referred to as like God's energy, what have you, that flows through the spine. And there are these things, these blockages called vertebral subluxations that happen and they cause all kinds of diseases. And the chiropractor will do these rapid uh, uh, thrusts of, of the spine to release that blockage and to allow mm -hmm. this mysterious energy to flow through. Um, at some point, I mean, I mean, the way that I put this, I think you realize that this is not based on any kind of science whatsoever. And so at it some point, like some... 
Yeah, I mean, and again, this was pre-scientific, and this was just some right. guy's idea of how the body might work. Um, and uh, and history is littered with with these guys who thought they understood how the body worked and who were proven to be wrong. And at some point, there were some chiropractors who tried to rescue the profession, and they became evidence-based chiropractors. And they're trying to restrict their scope of practice, and they're trying to see well maybe those uh those like rapid mobilizations maybe they are good for certain things for certain specific problems but the original like the og chiropractors really believe that they can treat pretty much any any disease whereas the more evidence-based ones are trying to do more like physical therapy stuff um and so uh there's sam homola who's very good who has written about this for science-based medicine a chiropractor who is trying to like see to salvage something from chiropractic um i have been like i said I've, I've been to a chiropractor this was you know 20 years ago now um mm -hmm. for some some neck and shoulder problems um and it was very very funny because i realized uh this whole time that what was actually beneficial to me was laying down with a hot compress on my neck and shoulders, which she was doing before she was doing the actual treatment. Um, but the treatment itself was doing nothing for me. And so mm -hmm. at some point I just stopped going. And again, to this thing of like, the, the you, you need maintenance therapy. She called me up and said, I noticed that you, you stopped coming to see me. Why is that? And I said, well, I think I figured out that what was actually working for me temporarily was that I was just lying down and, and having this, you put this hot compress on me and she got very angry. Oh, I said, well, if that's, okay. if that's all that, that I do that is useful, I should just save myself the work and just have a bunch of tables lying around and put people there with hot compresses on the back. I said, well, maybe that's what you should do. And I hung up. You said uh, so, you know, so that's, that's chiropractic in a nutshell. <laughs> I, I'm really glad that you explained that for us because I I don't think very many people know about the history of chiropractic and is it um it, is it like the 1800s when Dee Dee Palmer was I forget I believe so I mean, as you keep speaking years. I will I will uh, yeah, go yeah. through through my book here and uh, and give you a precise date but yes I believe it was uh, in the late 1800s I believe something like that um right and sorry i didn't mean to like jump throw that at you but uh yeah just to give a sense of like um where that modality dates back to and kind of like what time period we're talking about and as you've mentioned it sounds like there have been efforts to update or maybe create a branch of chiropractic that isn't exactly oh you found it you found the year. so dd palmer opened his school in 1897 in davenport iowa so that's when it started the very late 1800s Got it. I think it's challenging because nowadays there are people who are chiropractors and who are trying to practice in an evidence-based fashion in, in a there are. way that's more closely related to physical rehabilitation or physical therapy. And it's tricky because the paradigm that you're operating on is incredibly flawed, right? Yet people still experience positive outcomes mm -hmm. from chiropractic, especially for the things that chiropractic, like that manual therapy, those sorts of joint mobilizations and soft tissue work. Some, you know, some of those things can be helpful for something like back or neck pain. And it's, it's, it's just tricky. So mm -hmm. it is, you know, we're talking about like, can chiropractic be rescued and salvaged yeah. I face the same question when I wrote about osteopathy recently. 
Um, I, I mean, even physical therapy, a lot of it is not based on good evidence. Uh, so what yeah, is happening is that sure. medicine, medicine has kind of started this whole evidence-based game and we see all of these um, other complementary disciplines that sort of that are around it, that are paramedical, again, in that vague sense, uh, mm -hmm. that are playing catch up with it. I, I used to work in low vision rehabilitation research, and it was the same thing there as well. A lot of the interventions um, that were given to people who have low vision, these non-pharmacological therapies that were being given were not based on good evidence. And we were trying to generate some good evidence because a lot of it was just based on hearsay. Like, well, Dr. So-and-so has been doing this for 20 years. And apparently his patients are doing well. So that's what's happening with all right. of these disciplines that they're trying to become more and more evidence-based. And, you know, they're going to find out that a lot of the things that they've been pushing for have just no good evidence behind them and they may not be effective in the long run. And so the question is, well, is there anything in these disciplines that can be salvaged to bring the entire discipline into a more evidence-based arena. And that, of course, that remains to be seen. Yeah. Yeah. That, thank you for explaining that. Maybe the suggestion that some chiropractors who are operating today, if they, if they run their chiropractic business kind of more in the realm of physical therapy, they're treating like musculoskeletal pain, maybe around the area of the back and they're using kind of more evidence-based methods, maybe, maybe similar to something from physical therapy that maybe that type of chiropractor could be operating more in an evidence-based side of things, but that there are a lot of practitioners in chiropractic where they're not operating within an evidence-based, just trying to highlight like that there could yeah, be some. Yeah, yeah, and, and, I, and I do wonder like how they would market themselves, right? I think it's, it's like, well, you're saying you're a chiropractor, but you're not doing the very thing that your That's profession is based on. Mm -hmm. But then, but then to Jonathan's point, it's like, well, there's a lot of BS in physical therapy too. So mm -hmm. you say you're a physical therapist and then you're doing these other things the, for, for, to oversimplify more active interventions as opposed to a lot of these quack passive interventions. Yeah. And then it's like, well, what, what is the profession? What is yes. chiropractic? What is physical therapy? What cons, you know, if you're going to do it more in line with what the evidence says, are you still that thing or are you something different? Oh, I, I don't these know. are such big. There, there, big there might become, there might be a day at some point where all these professions coalesce into one <laughs> evidence-based <laughs> profession. But the problem That's right true. now is that, you know, all these people have been trained, they have bills to pay, they have careers. And yes. so you can't just tell chiropractors, well, just become PTs now because right. they have PTs to... wouldn't like that either. No, exactly. So it's, it's a complicated situation. Uh, absolutely. But I think the main thrust of our even bringing chiropractic up here is just, just so people, just to educate our listeners about like the history of chiropractic and that there is, there is a lot within um, that domain that is really not science-based. And for people to just realize it just because they're not, they're quote doc, like they have, I don't mean quote, like they're not doctors, but they're not medical doctors. They have the title doctor. The title doctor mean. is fascinating because it, dif I mean, who gets it differs on the language. Uh, like, like even in, in French, if you have a PhD, you are not referred to as a doctor, whereas in English you are. So, yeah. you know, this title doctor is 
just like wellness, it can be a little bit nebulous and it's regulated in different ways in different countries. And yeah, chiropractors, they get to call themselves doctors and there are naturopathic doctors as well. Yes. And it gets all very confusing as to who is a doctor and who isn't and what does being a doctor mean? Yeah, to be clear, it's so true. Jonathan, you mentioned a bit ago, um, naturopathy as a mm -hmm. as a modality and that is actually on our list of one that we wanted to ask you about could you tell us a little bit about that um like what that is and also i'm not i think i hear it as a naturopathy but i think i've also heard people say naturopathy and that uh and i think you can be a doc that's why you mentioned it because you can be a doctor of naturopathy or a naturopath we also often hear what what is yeah. what's naturopathy naturopathy is a big umbrella uh, mm -hmm. It's it's not, I, I don't consider it to be like one thing. It is many thing. It encompasses homeopathy, for example, but also mm. uh, herbalism and, and, and all kinds of different things. And really to summarize it, naturopathy is based on the appeal to nature fallacy. Yeah. It's this idea Thank that if something is natural, that. then it has to be good for you and it has to be harmless to you. Whereas if something is synthetic, uh, it is bad for you. It is harmful to you. Um, which is, again, it's a fallacious argument. It's not true. There are many things that are natural that are not good for you. We're spending a lot of money removing asbestos from buildings, even though asbestos yeah. is natural because it's not good <laughs> for you. And yes. there are all kinds of synthetic things that are perfectly uh, safe for you. So every, every substance needs to be tested for its safety, regardless of its origin. But naturopathy will say, well, if it comes from nature, if it's an herb or an extract mm -hmm. of some kind of a plant, uh, then that is good for you. We can treat everything with those kinds of natural things. Mother nature provides, whereas pharmaceutical yeah. drugs, oh, they're all synthetic. They're made in laboratories. They're not good for you. Uh, but this is, bad. again, this is all based on this, on this appeal to nature, which is so strong in the human brain. Like we're all drawn to this bad argument that, oh yeah, of course it's natural. It's good for us. And it's synthetic. Ooh, mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm skeptical about that. Uh, but if you know a thing or two about chemistry, you're, you know that everything is a chemical. Uh, an apple contains hundreds of chemicals and they all have these long names that many people can't pronounce uh, <clears throat> that has no bearing on the safety of eating an apple. Uh, these are just, yes. everything is made up of chemicals. So we have to test each of these chemicals to see which ones are safe and which ones are not. Thank you for outlining that. I, I feel like I come across the appeal to nature and I know that, um, that I have also for sure, um, bought into that as well. Like that bias, like, like you said it, the human brain, it's kind of just like naturally resonates for us. Like we just want to think like no nature is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think it's great to raise awareness around that. And I, I tend to see like, um, the wellness industry in general, just be really proliferated with a lot of appeal to nature. And, and then kind of coming along with that is like a rejection of, of conventional medicine, because that is seen as not natural. And, um, with, with naturopathy, it's like written into the name, like nature is in, is in the name, but that's just such a really great point that, um, you know, chemicals are in everything. They're in the air that we breathe. We don't need to inherently fear chemicals. And, uh, am, am I correct in in suggesting that like pharmacology as a field, I um, don't know much about it at all, but I, but I believe that uh, a lot of um, modern drugs that have come from pharmacology are uh, derived from plants, like yes, a they are. good amount of them. Uh, so sometimes you have to modify them a little bit to make them uh, more tolerable. 
but yes, a lot of our modern drugs, you know, come from plants. If they're not directly coming from plants, they are modifications of, of ingredients that are found in, that were found in plants that had some interesting activity and then they were refined and, and they're dosed properly and they're tested for safety so that you know that if you have a headache, you don't go out and take a, a one inch by one inch patch of willow tree bark and chew on it uh, because who knows how much, uh, how much uh, pain relief you're going to get from that. But you can actually go to the pharmacy and get some, uh, some ASA and, and, you, and it's going to be easier on your stomach and you're going to get uh, the same dose in every caplet. Uh, so that's right. the basic principle that, yes, there are all kinds of natural chemicals that plants, for example, are, are, are producing that may have some therapeutic effect. Uh, but there's so much variation in how much you will find in a plant, given uh, the climate, given the season, uh, given the altitude, mm. the soil composition. So true. There's a lot of variation. Plants are living things. And so the amounts of these chemicals will vary depending on all kinds of factors. And so you wouldn't want to just go chewing on plants uh, thinking that it's going to help you because again, you don't know how much, and it's not just one chemical you're getting, you're getting all kinds of chemicals that the plant has. The plant will have hundreds of these chemicals. Um, and so what pharmacology does is it takes, you know, it might take some, uh, you know, some uh, community somewhere saying, oh, we, we think that this plant has this particular healing activity and then, and then they will study it. They will isolate the active ingredient that does this. They might need to modify it a little bit to make it more tolerable for consumption, for, you know, easier on the stomach, for example. Um, and then you, you safety test it in animals and then in phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials until you know what its effectiveness is, you know what its safety profile is, you have a recommended dosage that you can give to people. You know what an overdose looks like, what the, what, the, what the dose of that is. And you can then market this ingredient in the same dose in every tablet or every caplet or every pill um, to get the same effect each time. That's, that's a good thing. And somehow that's a good thing, right? there, are, there are people who want to go back to us chewing on plants, but there's just so yes. much variability there. It's a little bit like playing Russian roulette. So... But again, there's ah, this idea that phar you know, pharmacology and the pharmaceutical industry is all synthetics and it's big labs and it's, it's scary and it's not mother nature. Yeah, but mother nature is red in tooth and claw. Mother nature doesn't like us. Like we wow. there are all kinds of bad things that happen in nature. So we should stop idolizing nature. Yes. We can get inspired by nature and we can derive good things from nature, but then we can use our knowledge to tweak them and make them better for us. That is so well said. And I think just like really presents the case for something like aspirin that you buy at the drugstore, just being like a really safe and reliable and trustworthy source of um, a medicine that one might take and like, just kind of helps to break down that illusion that like, that's not natural, you know, or, or just to remove our ideas about like good, bad and nature and synthetic that should, that are just so oversimplified and that I know the brain is easily drawn to, but there's so Black and much. white, angels and demons. We see this in diets as well. You know, this thing is, is evil. Stay away from it. And this is amazing and great. And it's a superfood. We love those simple stories, but they're just, they're, they're wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and in our podcast too, um, Yoga Meets Movement Science, uh, Travis and I talk a lot about movement and a lot of move. It's the same thing. Like a lot of movements become demonized. Like that way of moving is always bad. And this way of moving is always good. And, you know, just the the dichotomy, um, right. it's just so much overlap there in the way we like to 
see things. Um, so that's a great take uh, and explanation of naturopathy. Maybe we could talk about just a couple more um, sure. modalities for the sake of just our all of our education and kind of having more examples to kind of see this. You mentioned, and I think this is a pretty good one, you mentioned homeopathy a bit ago. Mm -hmm. You said that was part of naturopathy. Yes. So maybe mm -hmm. it's not its own separate thing, but maybe a little. Well, it, it is. It is. And it's very interesting uh, because this is kind of the low hanging fruit. Uh, when you understand homeopathy, either you still buy into it somehow because you've had good experiences with it or you realize oh this is not at all what i thought it was because in fact uh mm. when i believe it was health canada when they surveyed canadians uh to know what their understanding of homeopathy is most surveyed canadians did not understand what homeopathy was somehow homeopathy has become equated with naturopathy with herbalism with natural remedies but mm -hmm. homeopathy is not that homeopathy has very 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 uh, clear and distinct claims that it makes that are very hair-raising and unscientific. <clears throat> so homeopathy, <laughs> um, homeopathy came about in the late 1700s, if memory serves, 1790-something. Uh, German physician Samuel Hahnemann, uh, back when, you know, it wasn't even modern medicine, but back when conventional medicine was, again, leeches and uh, right. bloodlettings and, and patients were dying all the time, said there must be a better way. Uh, and his answer was not ShamWow, uh, but it was uh, through, it's a long story and it involves, um, uh, it involves malaria and, and all that kind of stuff. But basically um, he uh, decided that uh, like cures like. So mm -hmm. if something uh, gives you the symptom of a disease, um, that something will be the cure to that disease. So if, if, when, if when a healthy person takes a particular natural substance and they develop the symptoms that look like a disease that is known, <clears throat> then somebody who has that disease should take that same substance to get cured of the disease. <clears throat> so like cures like, which again, not true. It's not how this works, but it's that's how it's- though. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very kind of it's logic it's superficially logical, but uh, right. in practice, right. in practice, like biologically speaking, that's not how this works. <clears throat> but that's what he thought, <laughs> and so he started he started testing these toxins and these poisons and these toxic uh, ingredients on on friends and relatives to see what would happen. And he would document oh this gosh. and say, "Oh, this wow. looks like the symptoms of uh, food poisoning, and this looks like this, this <laughs> looks like that." And so, yeah, so as, as my boss likes to, likes to, uh, to joke, uh, it was not good to be friends with Samuel Hahnemann, <clears throat> but then, yeah, but then what he, what he thought was, okay, well, of course, if you give them <clears throat> the full strength of this ingredient, uh, they're going to get sick. So what you have to do is you have to dilute it. You mm -hmm. have to dilute it a lot. And in his mind, you would dilute out the negative effects, but you would preserve the positive effects. And so he would dilute this, these substances to the point where they weren't even there anymore. He was just mm -hmm. giving the water or the alcohol that was used for the dilution. Uh, now it's often uh, put on a uh, sugar tablet. And so that's uh -huh. what homeopathic remedies are now. There's these little sugar granules uh, that received the final drop of the final dilution of this original ingredient, which has nothing to do with the disease that it is meant to cure. And so you're getting a sugar pill um, wow. and the idea is that the more diluted it is, the more potent it becomes. 
So that's what homeopathy wow. is. And so, yeah, wow is the correct uh, answer here. So when you <laughs> understand biology and chemistry and you look at the claims that homeopathy is making, it makes no sense whatsoever. It violates just basic principles of, right. of every science that is known to humankind. Um, because by that principle, if you, if you, uh, if you drink a beer, uh, you get a little bit drunk, but if you dilute that beer, if you take one <laughs> drop of that beer in a glass yes. full of water, you would just die from alcohol poisoning. You're so that's, right. That's like what that would mean. Yeah. That's, that's where the logic uh, takes you. And so, but the reason why people have good experiences with homeopathy is often because of the placebo response, <clears throat> which is right. that, you know, for a variety of reasons are those aches and pains and symptoms, they usually go away on their own. Um, you know, the, the, the flu lasts about seven days. And so, uh, so whatever you do, uh, whatever you do when you're feeling at your worst, you're going to get better. Unless of course the flu kills you, which it does every year. It kills a lot of people every year. And we don't think about that, but, but most people survive the flu and most, and we survive the common cold and all of these little aches and pains. Uh, but it feels like we get better after we take this little sugar pill. And that's just association. It's correlation. It's not causation, right? Uh, mm -hmm. but it's, it's mm -hmm. once you have had that saying. experience of, I was feeling like hell and I took those, uh, homeopathic uh, remedies and I started to feel better. You mm -hmm. have this story mm -hmm. in your brain that, oh, it worked for me. And yes. then nobody can convince you otherwise because you have personally experienced it yeah. and personal experience is so much more powerful than me writing about homeopathy on the internet uh, or, or, about a, or, or about a doctor or about what have you, because you have felt, you have experienced it yourself. Right. You were sick, you took the thing and now you're better. And even though, so, so that, that, that correlates, that personal experience of correlation is so powerful that it convinces a lot of people that these sugar pills, there must be something to them. Uh, but it is wow. one of the easiest pseudosciences to debunk because, again, it is based on these ridiculous principles that predate modern science, that make no sense. It's been tested. The problem, of course, is that there are tons of studies of homeopathy that are poorly done and that look positive. But there are much better, much more rigorous studies of homeopathy that shows that there's, they do nothing. But, again, personal experience trumps data. And so a lot of people still take these little sugar pills. I think, too, I think that mechanism that you spoke of well, it worked for me. Like mm -hmm. that applies to a lot of the things that we've been talking about. And then when it worked for you, will you tell your friends? And then they mm -hmm. say, oh, well, it worked for Jonathan. Then they have the expectation, which further uh, going into any of these treatments, if you expect it to work and the provider's telling you that it's going to work, that's going to enhance that placebo effect. And, and if, so you if have... you've had that good experience or somebody yeah, else. And if you have chronic pain, you know that your pain levels fluctuate from day to day. And so uh, when they're at their worst, uh, you wanted, you, you're desperate for something. And then you go and you take some homeopathy. And then, of course, your symptoms go back to their average value. It's called regression to the mean. And again, it's correlation, personal experience. You feel, oh, I got better. Yeah, well, you would have gotten better anyway because your pain fluctuates. Right. And so that little scenario there, your symptoms are rather worse. You're desperate. You reach out for anything you can find. Your symptoms alleviate a little bit. They go back to their average value. 
it becomes this very convincing story that, oh, well, this, it must be this thing. And you don't realize that because of course we can't split reality into two. I mean, of course, some people believe in the multiverse, but if we were able to do that, (laughs) you could do an experiment where you take the homeopathy in one universe and you don't take it in the other. And then you see what happens. And that's why we do randomized control trials is because we can't split the universe into multiverses. And so we do it in this way that approximates this by randomizing people into groups, making sure the groups are comparable, giving one group the treatment, the other one a placebo that looks like it, and we follow them and they don't know what they're getting. And then you see, is there really a difference? Thank you for explaining that and just doing more science education for people to understand like what, like what a randomized And the multiverse is very like. in right now. So that my, my example was very, very fashionable. <laughs> I love that example of like, yeah, yourself in two different universes. And like you made find out that you would have gotten better anyway, but because we can't do that, then there's the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy where it's like, after, very good after Latin. This because of this. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then it's just, then we're just, our brains are so prone to bias. So things happen in a certain order. I took this homeopathic remedy and then I felt better. And then you just attribute that as a cause. And then as Travis pointed out, you're so right, Travis, then we we add on, we um, lump on, like, then you have an expectation about it for the next time. And then, so I guess uh, I'm really glad you brought up placebo and the placebo effect, Jonathan, because we had wanted to ask you about this. Wondering, um, because I, I do think that many of these modalities that we've been talking about and, and others as well, can help people especially i think with things that are a little more like subjective like like pain things things like that or that change you know fluctuate um they might help them but it might be because of these placebo effects or contextual effects so if to the extent that that may be true like if say acupuncture which i know we actually haven't gotten into maybe we'll get you to tell us a little bit about acupuncture but like if if acupuncture someone goes and then they feel better after uh, do you think the fact that placebo What's could the be harm? In... Yeah, that's my question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, like, that's such a great question. Better. So like, could yeah. we still do it or recommend it if placebo is part of it? That's yeah, that's exactly the question. What's the harm? So um, very quickly, acupuncture uh, predates mm-hmm. science by a lot. And it's this idea that inside the body are things like rivers, like the rivers of China. And we have this life force called chi that flows through it. And sometimes there's a blockage of this chi. Uh, right. But what acupuncture used to be like is, is was, was bloodletting. They were just using these needles to let, right. uh, let fluids out. And it's only recently that we've had the technology to make hollow needles uh, that are very, very small needles that you can insert and to, um, and to do the, what we consider now to be acupuncture. Uh, but that was not acupuncture for most of its existence. Wow. Uh, so and again, those- we're, we're kind of... We're rewriting history with acupuncture. Oh, that makes so much sense. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to ask, you said the rivers of chi that flow through Uh us in this modality. Are those called meridians? I think our listeners will be familiar with that. Yes, exactly. Because if I get this correctly, at the time, the Chinese did not want to do autopsies. They saw this as like a violation of the body. And so they didn't know what the body looked like on the inside. And they just looked to nature as as a symbol as an example like well we've got all these rivers and so that must be how the body works again like all of these hypotheses are fine when you don't have better knowledge i mean you just go oh Mm. maybe it's this maybe it's this maybe it's that uh but it's just that now we know that we don't have rivers inside the body we have blood vessels and we have lymph vessels and we have a good understanding of biology and when you look 
add the chi points, on the one hand, they don't correspond to anything really, biologically speaking, but on the other, there are so many chi points that they're they're all over the place. And so they can be whatever you want them That's to be. And there are right. different there are different maps of these chi points. So depending on which acupuncturist you go see, they're using different maps. So it's, you know, it's it is what it is. Um and some <laughs> people have tried some people have tried to bring like a veneer of science to acupuncture by saying, well, maybe there's a release of endorphins at the point of insertion. And mm -hmm. from what I've seen, the, the, the studies are not very, uh, very clear or conclusive on that. But, um, but anyway, your question was basically, what's the harm, right? Which is what every journalist asks me all the time. Well, yeah, but what's the harm? <laughs> uh, there's, there's a lot of potential harm. Um, the first one is financial, right? As I was mentioning, you get a lot of treatments up front and then you have maintenance treatments and those main, those treatments are not free. You might have insurance that covers those things, but you, you may not. And, and so that's a lot of money out of, out of your pocket. And what are you really getting out of it? Mm -hmm. Maybe you're getting a, a temporary relief in pain as I was with the chiropractor, but then mm -hmm. I found out that I could do exactly the same thing for free at home by putting a hot <laughs> compress on my yes. shoulders. Yes. So, uh, so I saved myself a lot of money that way. Uh, then there's also the fact that, um, any intervention carries some risks, uh, with acupuncture, there are rare, but documented cases of pneumothorax where the lungs are pierced by the needle and you start Ooh. to lose air through your lungs, which is not good. Wow. I'm not a doctor, but I can tell you that is not good. <laughs> yeah. You need to go to the hospital. Right. Uh, with chiro with chiropractic, there's also rare but documented cases of uh, vertebral um, artery dissection. So when they thrust the, the the neck very quickly, sometimes it creates a rupture in one of your blood vessels in your neck, and that is also not good. No. Um, with um, I, I saw an acupuncturist for a little bit, and it wasn't doing anything. And then he started to say, "Well, you know, if you really want the full thing, you need to go get yourself some herbs from the local Chinese shop." Oh, that's and right. And then I then I learned that a lot of these herbs uh, they have liver toxicity; they are Ugh. not good for your liver. And sometimes you don't quite know what herb you're getting from the from the shop, and <clears throat> they may not know themselves because some of the herbs look the same, and sometimes there are substitutions and alterations. And, so, so that's an, that's another issue. So there are actual physical harms that can happen to you. Um, there's also the delay in getting proper medical care for something yeah. that, for which you might benefit from going to see a doctor by thinking that, oh, I'll be fine. I'll take this alternative stuff. And then six months later you realize, oh, this is not working. And now my tumor is bigger. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's a very real danger. Mm -hmm. There are some people who have died from eschewing medical treatment and going with an alternative instead. And they've delayed medical care to the point where doctors couldn't help them uh, in the end. So there's all of that. Wow. And there's there's also this, this kind of rabbit hole that you fall into when you go see these practitioners, which is that, again, if you think that you have the one true cause of all diseases and the cure-all for everything, <clears throat> then, of course, uh, if your patient has cancer, you're going to be tempted to say, I can do something for you. Yeah. Uh, because you think you have these, you know, godlike powers, you know, you know what causes everything. So, I mean, different practitioners, you know, will think about these things differently and some will, will realize that, no, there are things that I can't treat. Uh, but these notions are very seductive because, again, if everything is due to a blockage of chi, then you can help anybody with anything, right? Yeah. Uh, where are the limits to to what you can and cannot do? Um, and so you, you know, when you go see these practitioners, you might start to 
here th- you you develop this relationship of trust with your practitioner right because they treat you well and you mm-hmm. have a whole hour with them and you talk and talk with them and they may start to say things about you know pharmaceuticals and they don't recommend taking drugs and you know are you taking these vitamins and these supplements and oh i sell them by the way by the by, by mm. the counter and so totally. you you get drawn into this anti-pharma anti-medicine community um and this can have repercussions further down the road and again as we said at the beginning there are good criticisms of medicine and of pharmaceuticals for sure but what often happens in cam circles is the 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 very simplistic demonization of this whole thing over there uh and a replacement with essentially what is wishful thinking what is pre-scientific guesswork of how the body works and that is fed to by the therapeutic relationship that you have and with a number of placebo effects that play into that that makes you think that it is helping a little bit and you want to please the person that you're seeing and you're spending a lot of your money into this as well and so you are financially yeah, the involved the sunk cost fallacy you know and and i'm not a sucker like i've been i've been seeing this person for three months and i've spent you know hundreds and hundreds of dollars right. i can't be a sucker so i have to continue doing this so all of these things oh my give gosh. you this idea that it might be working but you're getting drawn into this you know f- i mean i don't i don't want to say that all of these practitioners are conspiratorial in nature but again right. this anti-pharma sentiment is very strong in cam circles mm-hmm. and so you start to you start to hear this stuff and maybe you start to believe it and that changes the decisions that you make for your own you know personal health care would you say opportunity costs would be a good way of describing okay i'm doing this thing but i should really be getting proper medical care <laughs> like the like what's the harm well the harm is that uh-huh. you've now wasted or spent time doing this thing that hasn't helped when your situation has gotten worse and you should have yeah 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 there there is there's there is definitely this this cost of like if you have a degenerative condition mm-hmm. uh, a worsening condition and you delay proper medical treatment because you think that this uh this softer thing this nicer thing this natural thing is going to help you um and it doesn't because again it's not based on good evidence then you are delaying proper medical care and your your situation is worsening and as we all know doctors can do more for you early on than they can when your progression is worse so yeah that that is a very real uh harm of of complementary and alternative medicine the uh, we mentioned the appeal to nature Another one that that what you just mentioned came to mind the appeal to antiquity is that yes the correct that's another big so one yeah that the idea of like this you said pre science the the way that they are, the the other way of looking at it would be ancient wisdom yes exactly <laughs> it's been done for thousands of years Travis surely yeah, they wouldn't I still mean, that, be doing it if it that, didn't that, work that was very encouraging to me back in the day when I explored some of these things, I had gastrointestinal issues and I saw an Ayurvedic doctor. And that was one of the the allures, I think, was not only is this more natural, we're going to treat through diet, but this is something that's been around for 5,000 years. And science just yeah. hasn't caught up to it yet. <laughs> Somehow, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, But the counter argument is, yeah, but physicians used to do bloodletting for hundreds and hundreds of years. So Not true. because bloodletting works. And most, I mean, there are, there's very few indications nowadays to do that. 
but because there was nothing else and they just they just did it because they thought they were helping the patients and if the patient died oh well you know it was the will of god or something you know okay. uh, we did what we could uh so just because you've been doing something for a very long time does not mean that yeah. it works or that it is good and then the flip side of that is the appeal to novelty which is oh it's new it must be better no, just mm -hmm. because a drug is new. And that's something that we see with ph the pharmaceutical industry. They'll, sh they'll show you a new drug. Oh, it's new. It's new. Yeah, but if it's not better than the standard of care that has been used for decades and whose safety profile is well known and where it's a generic drug and it's much cheaper, then no, doctors should not be prescribing the new treatment. They should be prescribing the older treatment. So again, it's these are all these these fallacious arguments, these bad arguments that we fall for mm -hmm. on the spot because, because we think about them superficially, but when we think about them a little more deeply, we realize, oh no, this is a faulty argument, but it's, it's very appealing. This appeal to antiquity is very, very strong. And in fact, for traditional Chinese medicine, this was bolstered by uh, what happened during the, the, the cultural revolution in the, in the mid 20th century, where they realized that they didn't have enough uh, doctors in the countryside. And so they, brought back these old folkloric traditions like acupuncture and they taught that to those those doctors away from the uh, from the cities and that sort of reinvented traditional chinese medicine and now we think that it's something that they've been doing for millennia in exactly this way uh, but it was it actually had to be brought back because they, did, they didn't have enough doctors and that was just a cheap thing uh, for for them to do so it's not yeah so it sounds like traditional chinese medicine we we tend to think of it as is ancient and therefore extra powerful but it sounds like you're <laughs> you're letting us know that it's actually not so ancient not that it even matters because that's a fallacy anyway to exactly. place value on something because of that um jonathan you've done such a wonderful job today of uh really just addressing our questions and uh, really insightfully kind of outlining your perspective and a scientific perspective on all of these modalities. I I hope I've not angered too many of your listeners. <laughs> well, well we forward were... the hate mail to you. <laughs> oh, great. Thank you. Um, I was Just wondering kidding. if um, before we totally wrap up, can, is it a, can I ask you one final question that I think just might be extra? No, you can't. We're done. <laughs> I'm, on the, I'm on the clock here, Jenny. <laughs> uh, one final question, which you could totally just give us a quick answer for, but I think it's like a relevant one for our audience. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with or aware of this, but in the yoga world, the yoga world's kind of broad and there are various yoga styles and yoga is taught in, um, uh, from different perspectives and, and in different ways, but there is definitely uh, a faction of the yoga world where yoga is used as uh, maybe a, a therapy or used as medicine. Like that's kind of the, the verbiage that we hear the wording like yoga as medicine. And um, just wondering, do you have an opinion on the idea of, of yoga, the practice of yoga being used as something like medicine or to treat conditions? I have not looked deeply into this. I am very, very skeptical of that claim. Um, I would refer your listeners to the podcast Conspirituality uh, mm -hmm. that is hosted by Matthew Remsky, uh, Derek Barris, and Julian Walker. Uh, who all or most of them have backgrounds in yoga practice um, and who have also denounced the excesses of the yoga world and um, a lot of the problems with certain yogi um, and the, the unsubstantiated claims uh, behind yoga. 
um, yeah, I, I, I would not use yoga as a, as a healing practice. I have done uh, yoga for, for, for many years at home and, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a wonderful stretching exercise. I, I don't want to be popping too many because I, I think the, your typical listener might might finish the episode thinking, well, I guess nothing is real and nothing matters and become right. very, very cynical. Um, no, it's just that when we when we are okay with changing our beliefs in the face of better evidence, it yeah. means that we don't waste our time on things that don't work. We don't waste our money on interventions that are not effective. And it allows us to make better use of our time uh, and our money. And it allows us to um, also lower our expectations for what something might do to us. Uh, we mentioned Paul Ingram uh, beforehand, and you know, there's a lot of criticism that he has of massage therapy and the benefits mm -hmm. that, that it claims to, to, to bring to you. But as far as I know, he still goes to see a massage therapist because <laughs> it feels good. Mm -hmm. And I've had massages as well, and they feel good. So They're we relaxing. don't always... Yeah, exactly. And so we don't need to have these unrealistic expectations, these big like health claims. Oh, it's going to cure this. It's going to help your body right. heal from that. Uh, we can just say, you know what? Maybe this just feels good and I enjoy yeah. it. I enjoy yoga. It makes me feel good. I feel more connected to my body. I feel more grounded. Yes. It teaches me to feel my body in space. It's 100%. good for my core. Um, it's just, it's, and it, it helps me take a moment for myself. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I, you know, I, we're all super stressed and we've got bills to pay and we've got bad news all over, all over uh, our phones when we're scrolling through Twitter. And sometimes it's good to just take a little bit of time to ourselves and to breathe. And for some people, 100%. that's reading a book. For other people, it's doing a session of yoga. And so yoga doesn't need to cure your cancer to be helpful. It can just be a that's half it. hour that you spend uh, being inside of your body and letting go of your anxieties. And that is a good thing. I love that answer so much. Thank you for, good. thank you for offering <laughs> I'm, that. Yeah. I'm trying to rescue your listeners from, from cynicism and nihilism here. <laughs> that's, that's right. That, yeah. Um, yoga is a very, can be an amazing practice. So many people are drawn for it for very many good reasons, but we don't need to maybe make, um, claims about it that are unsupported or that really blow out of proportion, like what it may And there's a community it. aspect also of, of like exercising with other people and, and getting to know these people and making friends. And like, I go to the gym as well. I take classes and it's, 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 I didn't think that I would enjoy it as much as I do, but like being there with other people. And yeah. it helps you give yourself a hundred percent and you also make friends and it's that whole community aspect is good for mental health as well. And for socializing. And that's not nothing. That's very, very important. And that also has health benefits in the long run. Right. But it's, it's just not going to cure your, your cancer. That's, that's, that's all I want to say. <laughs> I love that thing. And thank you for pointing out. I was thinking in my mind about the community aspect as you were talking about all the great um, benefits of yoga. That's another huge one. I'm so glad you said that. So yeah, yeah, not to discourage anybody. It's actually to me, I find it like really encouraging, but just to see these modalities more clearly, you know, like, what are they actually doing? How are they working? How are they not working? Then we can use them more wisely and just be more intentional. Um, so Jonathan, thank you so much. Oh yes, uh, where, okay, we will put uh, all the links to all of your stuff in the show notes, but where can listeners, like where would you direct them to learn more from you, follow your work? 
So um, all the articles that I write uh, for McGill are available at mcgill.ca slash OSS. Mm -hmm. uh, the podcast that I co-host with an actual medical doctor uh, is right. called The Body of Evidence. Uh, it's very fun. We try to keep it light and comedic, but we also we delve deeply into what is the evidence behind this or that intervention. Um, so that's the body of evidence. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. It's also at bodyofevidence.ca. And on social media, I am mostly on Twitter now. I'm hoping that it doesn't go down in a giant ball of flames. <laughs> totally hear um, you. I uh, yeah, I started uh, a post.news account. It's very, very quiet. <laughs> I can hear the crickets. Uh, but that's my plan B in case Twitter uh, goes to hell. I looked for you on Instagram and I didn't find you on there. Travis and I are both on Instagram a little more. I'm not on Instagram yeah. is definitely the platform for like wellness influencers. And yes. Like you want, you want to post your photo of you doing yoga at sunrise on the beach. In a bikini. Uh, <laughs> I don't do that. So I don't have an Instagram account. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Um, yeah. Well, well, thank you for letting our listeners know where they can find you. I personally think your work is super important and you do a really wonderful job at it. Um, so thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing all of this knowledge and insight with our listeners. We so appreciate it. Thank you once again for the invitation. And that wraps up our look at complementary and alternative medicine. Remember that you can support our work with this podcast by subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. You can also stay in the loop with all of our offerings by signing up for my email newsletter at jennyrawlings.com newsletter, and the link is in the show notes. Lastly, remember to use code podcast 30 for 30% off your first month in Travis's and my strength for yoga remote group training program or 30% off your first month and any of the other memberships on my website. You can learn more and sign up at jennyrawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon. Mm -hmm.